0: Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Church, if you would, please stand with me for the reading of Scripture to honor our Lord and His Word. This is what the Apostle John has recorded by the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Church, hear now the words of the one true and living God. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word. Father, as we open up your word this morning, we pray that you would speak clearly to us from it. We pray that you would cause your word to go forward in our midst and accomplish in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives your intended purpose. For it and for us this morning, we submit our hearts and our minds and our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, you may be seated. Well, happy Palm Sunday. Um, It is hard to believe that next weekend is Easter, our Sunday to Sunday Sunday journey with Jesus over the past 10 weeks or so is almost complete. And as we saw last weekend, we are at the point in Jesus' passion um, where Jesus is now entirely alone. We are seeing Jesus as the lonely king. Last weekend, we followed Jesus into his darkest hour in the first half of John 18 And how does Jesus' darkest hour begin? Last weekend, we saw that his people reject him and his leader denies him. Today, in the second half of John 18, we're going to see Jesus continue down this road of humiliation as he marches slowly and steadily and resolutely towards the cross. And so again, this morning, like last weekend, we're asking the question, what makes Jesus the lonely king? In this hour, this morning, we see that his government fails him. His government fails him. Now, first, John recounts for us the setup. Again, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So, John tells us that it is now... Early morning. Um, It is perhaps around 6 a.m., and presumably the sun is beginning to rise uh, throughout Jerusalem. Jesus has been awake all night, suffering interrogation at the hands of the Jewish leaders. He has been questioned by Annas. He has been passed off to Caiaphas, interrogated by him, and also the rest of the Sanhedrin. Jesus has been spit on. He has been mocked. He has been slapped. He has been punched. He has been beaten. And he has been blasphemed. His people have rejected him. And John emphasizes um, the total rejection of Jesus by his people by shifting from referencing at this point in the narrative specific Jewish figures like Annas and Caiaphas to the Jews more generally. And as all of this has continued to unfold, Peter, his leader, has simultaneously denied him. As we saw last weekend, Peter was following Jesus at a distance, and we, we saw Peter was warming himself by a fire with Jesus' enemies while Jesus was suffering alone. And so now as the sun comes up and as the daylight beckons, the Jewish leaders have run their course with Jesus and they have finalized their corrupt verdict. Jesus must die. Next, John tells us, that the events of this text uh, this morning are set in the governor's headquarters they led jesus to the governor's headquarters now the governor's headquarters or um, the praetorium as it was called was located in the palace that herod the great had built along the western wall of uh, jerusalem Um, and it was from this palace that uh, the roman governor ruled while he was staying in Jerusalem. And so the question we should be asking is why do they take Jesus there? Here's why uh, the Jews have arrested Jesus, they have convicted Jesus in their sham proceedings, they have decided to kill Jesus. But the only problem with their plan is that they have plotted what they cannot do. The Jews can't kill Jesus because they don't have the authority. To take life. It turns out that just a couple decades prior, the Romans had made sure to remove the Jews' legal authority to carry out capital punishment. So Rome reserved the exclusive right to carry out executions. So, what the Jewish leaders have to do now is they have to take Jesus to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and they have to try to convince him to have Jesus executed. Now, as an aside, I want you just to consider the hypocrisy of the religious leaders in this moment. Look at the, first, the second half of verse 28. Um, speaking of these Jewish leaders, John narrates that they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And so here are these Jewish leaders. They're unwilling to make themselves kind of ritually or ceremonially, ceremonially unclean by entering a Gentile space Uh, because that would then render them unable to eat the Passover that night. But they are totally eager to seek the murder unjustly of God's own son. That the religious leaders were careful about eating the Passover later that day tells us that these events are unfolding during the day of preparation. Uh, And the day of preparation was the day when Um, All the Passover lambs who had been brought into Jerusalem were slain, were sacrificed in the Jerusalem temple. So according to Jewish tradition, the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed on the 14th day of Nisan, uh, in the afternoon, uh, at twilight, uh, before the beginning of the Passover feast, which started at sundown. And sundown marked the beginning of the 15th of Nisan. So... As Jesus is brought before Pilate early in the morning as he stands trial in this moment and as he continues uh, in his humiliation, Jews are waking up as the sun is coming up all throughout Jerusalem and the heads of house are preparing to bring their sacrificial lambs to the temple to be slain. And in just a matter of hours, Jesus is going to be killed Outside the city, at the same time, all these Passover lambs are being killed inside the temple. And now all of this brings us to Jesus' enemies' attempt to persuade Pilate to execute Jesus. Uh, because the Jewish leaders will not go into Pilate's palace, Pilate must go outside to accommodate them. Um, and although Pilate has almost certainly been briefed on the proceedings against Jesus he's almost certainly been briefed on the Jews case against Jesus Pilate opens the hearing with a request of them for formal charges against Jesus verse 29 so Pilate went outside to them and said what accusation do you bring against this man then the Jews answered him if this man were not doing evil we would not have delivered him over to you Now, what I want you guys to notice is their response amounts to a great big nothing burger, okay? Uh, The Jewish leaders are vague here because they don't have anything substantive on Jesus that would warrant capital punishment, that would warrant execution from the Romans' perspective. And because now they haven't given Pilate any legal basis to convict Jesus... Um, he turns around and he tells them to go handle the situation according to their own laws and traditions. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law then. So by doing this, Pilate now forces their hand. Uh, They have judged Jesus. They just can't kill him. And so now they just come out and they tell Pilate explicitly what they want. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We want to kill him, but you Romans... Won't let us. John then offers this narrative remark, verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see that? What does John mean by that? It almost seems like John's narrative remark doesn't follow from the Jews' statement that preceded it. It's not lawful for anyone, for us to put anyone to death. And then John says this, what does John mean? I have to just kind of teach for just a moment. Uh, John has two parallel concerns in this moment um, as the narrator. So first, uh, John is narrating this unfolding conspiracy against Jesus, which is going to culminate in Jesus' crucifixion. And so John has a historical concern on one hand. He's narrating historical events. Does that make sense? But second, um, John is signaling the spiritual significance of these historical events as they unfold. We might refer to this as John's theological concern. So he has a historical concern. He also has a theological concern. Historically, John is narrating that Jesus was ultimately crucified... Because he was executed by the Romans and therefore he suffered a Roman means of execution. But theologically, John is showing that God is in control the entire time. He is showing that God is providentially using the Roman occupation to bring about his own son's sacrifice on the cross. And So that's why John says, this was to fulfill The word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Throughout his gospel, John uses that phrase, this was to fulfill. To show how Jesus fulfills various prophecies of scripture. How we might say the spiritual or the theological and the historical collide. But here, uh, John is using that phrase to show how Jesus fulfills his own prophecy about himself. Just earlier this very week, right after Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, um, he takes time to spend time with his disciples, and he says to them, the time for judging the world has come, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. And John says, he said this to indicate how he was going to die. Over and over, Jesus says this. John records it. When Jesus says that he's going to be lifted up, Jesus is not just saying that he's going to die, he's referring to the fact, the historical certainty, that he is going to die by crucifixion. But of course, the Jews believed that any person who was executed by hanging on a tree was considered cursed by God. The same was assumed of anybody who was crucified on a, a wooden Roman cross. Let's connect some dots. The backdrop is Passover. It's the day of preparation. The Jews take Jesus to Pilate seeking a Roman execution. A Roman execution order was necessary in order for Jesus to be crucified. God is at work, God is in control, God is sovereign. In Egypt, the first Passover occurred when the angel of death uh, visited the curse of death. Upon the firstborn of every household. But to to escape this curse, to be passed over by the angel of death, God's people had to do what? They, They had to slay a sacrificial lamb and apply its blood to the wooden doorposts of the house. We look at Exodus 12 and we see the specific requirements for this Passover lamb laid out in detail by the Lord. This lamb had to be a year-old male. It had to be a year-old male because it was then considered to be in the prime of its life. That Passover lamb, that sacrificial lamb, had to be without blemish, without any defect, uh, symbolizing its purity and perfection. It had to be slaughtered at twilight uh, on the 14th day of Nisan, on the day of preparation. And, of course, its blood had to be applied to the doorposts. And and the blood of the lamb being applied to the Israelites' doorposts would serve as a sign for God to pass over their houses, to pass over them in judgment, and to spare their firstborn son during the final plague in Egypt. But, you see, the curse of death had to be visited upon someone, God's people avoided the curse of death by the, the curse of death instead being visited upon the Lamb. And so the pure, spotless Lamb took the curse by being slaughtered at twilight on the day of preparation. And in our text, we see that this was to fulfill what was written. We see that God's plan is unfolding, His plan is for Jesus to be lifted up on the cross and and to take the curse. Jesus is the pure and spotless one. He's he's innocent of all charges. He's he's guiltless on every count. He's completely without sin. And he's going to take the curse of sin by being slaughtered on the day of preparation. He's going to take the curse of sin. He's going to be made the curse of sin by being cursed on the cross. His death on the cross, will serve as the ultimate sacrifice for the sins of his people. And this makes Jesus the true and better sacrificial lamb, the true and better Passover lamb. The Apostle Paul explains this in Galatians 3. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, we look at Jesus in this text. We see that God is putting him forward forward by his own providence, and we see that Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. So first, the setup. Next, the trial. John now turns his attention to Pilate's examination of Jesus. Uh, And this occurs inside Pilate's palace, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, "'Are you the king of the Jews?' Now, think about Pilate's question for just a minute. Pilate's question uh, reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus' mission and Jesus' identity. It is likely that as Jesus is brought to Pilate, Pilate, as a Roman governor, thinks that uh, Jesus is some kind of political revolutionary, that Jesus is some kind of threat to Roman authority. But, of course, Jesus is neither of those things. Pilate's question also betrays the fact that the Jews had almost certainly briefed him uh, ahead of time. So the Jewish leaders know something. They know, first of all, they want to get Jesus killed. That's why they're bringing him to Pilate. But they know something. They know that Jesus claiming to be God, uh, in their view, Jesus blaspheming, won't get Jesus killed by the Romans. The, The Romans won't take that as a serious charge. But they do know that they can twist Jesus' claim to be Messiah, to be God's long awaited promised forever king. They can twist that and present Jesus to the Romans as a threatening rival king to Caesar. And so the Jews almost certainly briefed Pilate and presented Jesus to him as the self proclaimed king of the Jews. And that's why Pilate asks Jesus that question. And the most, the most convenient outcome for Pilate would be for Jesus to simply answer that question yes. I am king of the Jews. Remember, Pilate has been summoned first thing in the morning. It's early. The sun is probably just coming up. If Jesus answers Pilate's question in the affirmative, then Pilate can just go ahead and have Jesus killed. The matter will be closed. And Pilate can move on with his day or maybe just go back to bed. But Jesus knows that he's been set up. And so he calmly turns the interrogation back around on Pilate. He answers Pilate's question with a question. Verse 34, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? To which Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And of course, Jesus hasn't done anything wrong lawless, or sinful. Jesus is the innocent one. He's committed no crime. He's committed no sin. So rather than answering the question, what have you done? Jesus responds to Pilate's first question with a profound declaration. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews but my kingdom is not from the world. And this response accomplishes two things simultaneously. It answers Pilate's original question truthfully, but also it informs Pilate that Jesus is not the kind of king that poses the kind of threat to Rome that Rome is concerned about. As we think about Jesus's declaration here, we need to understand that it's loaded with meaning and implications for us as followers of Jesus today. First, consider the nature of Jesus' kingdom. His declaration that his kingdom is not of this world highlights its distinctiveness from any earthly power or earthly kingdom or earthly nation. His kingdom transcends geographical boundaries. It rises above political affiliations. It transcends social divisions. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and it encompasses all who put their trust in him and in his finished work, which he is going to do in this very moment. It's an eternal kingdom. Contrary to the kingdoms that rise and fall in this world, his kingdom is one that has risen and which will never fall. It is a kingdom which will never be destroyed. We should think about what it means to be citizens of his kingdom. Understanding the nature of Jesus' kingdom has direct implications for us as his followers. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul reminds us that our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so, friends, as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, our primary allegiance must always be to Him. Our primary allegiance must always be to His teachings, rather to any other earthly power or authority or leader or teacher. And this means that our values, our priorities, and our actions should be shaped governed by the principles of his kingdom rather than by any values or expectation that this world presents to us. And as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, we're called to live lives that are marked by the things that characterize him in his kingdom. We're called to live lives that are marked by love and truth and forgiveness and humility and sacrificial service to one another and to those whose lives are in close proximity to. We're to be salt and light in a fallen and broken and dark world. We're to reflect the character of our king. And we're to invite others to experience his transforming power. Amen. We need to think about the implications of living simultaneously in two kingdoms. Jesus' statement that his kingdom is not of this world acknowledges the tension that we as believers face as we often experience living in two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord. And of course, as we live in this world, we are subject to this world, we are subject to its laws, to its government, governments and to its systems. Yet, we must remember that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. Our ultimate allegiance is to His kingdom. And of course, Jesus does not call us to follow him where he did not first go. Jesus models living in this tension perfectly. Even in this moment, we see Jesus modeling it in his lonely hour. He was subject to the Romans. He was subject to Pilate. He was subject to the abuse and the mistreatment and the mischaracterization of the Jewish leaders at the same time. His ultimate allegiance was to his father. And his ultimate purpose was to complete his kingly work by going to the cross. For all of us, the tension of living simultaneously in two kingdoms requires wisdom. It requires discernment as we navigate the complexities of living in a fallen world. But in all our engagements with the world around us, friends, we need to remember that our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope is not in human leaders. Our ultimate hope is not in earthly governments or earthly systems, but our ultimate hope is in Jesus, our true King. He is our ultimate hope. And our ultimate hope is in His promise to fulfill the kingdom Which he has brought in. Now, every kingdom has a king. And so, Pilate, as he listens to Jesus characterize his kingdom, can only draw one conclusion. Verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. And here again, Jesus is always in control. The dialogue never spins out of his control. So he neither confirms nor denies, but yet again uses the opportunity to move the conversation to a higher level. And Jesus says this to Pilate. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. That is Jesus saying, My voice is truth. That is Jesus saying that truth exists objectively, that it is external to us and intrinsic to Him. Pilate is concerned with politics. Jesus steers the conversation to matters of ultimate significance. And in this statement, this declaration, Jesus reveals not only his mission, but also his identity. He has come as the embodiment of truth. And friends, we need to consider at least three necessary implications of Jesus as the embodiment of truth. First, Jesus is the source and standard of truth. When Jesus declares that he has come to testify to the truth, he is essentially saying that he is the source of truth and he is the standard of truth. Just a few chapters ago in John 14, he said, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And as the embodiment of truth, Jesus is the ultimate revelation of who God is, of God's character, of God's will, of God's being, of God's purpose. Jesus is the starting point. Jesus is the reference point. Um, All truth finds its origin and fulfillment in Him, in Jesus. And so in a world that is just full of competing claims and opinions and beliefs, it is crucial for us as believers to anchor ourselves to the truth which is embodied, which is revealed in Jesus. We have to recognize that apart from Jesus... We cannot truly understand. We cannot truly make sense of reality, of meaning, or purpose. We find all those things located exclusively in him. And this is Jesus' challenge to the world. I am the truth. Everybody else is not. That is his challenge to the world. That is the great dividing line that every single person will find themselves on one side of. You either believe that Jesus is the truth or you believe that Jesus is not the truth. That is a properly closed disjunction. Only one can be true. Not both, not neither. He either is who he says he is or he is not who he says he is. The question that must be asked is if Jesus is not the truth, then what kind of person is he? Because what kind of person makes such claims about themselves, Everyone needs to choose a side. Either Jesus is the truth as he says he is, or he is not. But next, Jesus' claim demands that we recognize his call to be on the side of truth. We need to see how Jesus' statement that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice is his call for us to be on the side of truth. It is his call for us to align ourselves with the truth that he embodies, with the truth that he expresses. This begins with him and it reverberates outward in every direction, in our being and in our living. To be on the side of truth means to accept Jesus, to accept Jesus' teachings, to submit to his lordship, and to follow him faithfully in our daily lives. To be on the side of truth means embracing a lifestyle that reflects His values, priorities, and character. To be on the side of truth means speaking the truth. To be on the side of truth means speaking the truth about Him and not being ashamed of the truth about Him be on the side of truth means speaking the truth not only speaking the truth about Jesus but speaking the truth as Jesus spoke the truth Jesus spoke truth into darkness We are presently living in a culture of moral chaos. This is what happens when a society's thinking becomes futile and its collective heart is darkened. Just this last week, we observed the, the tragic events which unfolded in Nashville where a Christian school was targeted by a trans individual who killed three nine-year-olds and three adults. As the story was disseminated, I couldn't help but think that could have been my nine-year-old. And almost immediately, our thoroughly secularized culture spun the narrative godlessly. And even coming out of the White House, we heard statements like, Our hearts go out to the trans community as they are under attack right now. That's a message from the pit of hell. As I was reflecting on the events and the spin and this text and Jesus as the embodiment of truth and as I was reflecting on what it means To answer his call to be on the side of truth, I could not help but conclude that we can no longer remain silent. We live in a culture of moral chaos, which insists that boys can be girls, and girls can be boys, and men can marry men, and women can marry women. Marriage can be redefined in man's own liking, in man's, according to man's own preferences. We live in a culture of moral chaos, which insists that there is no intrinsic value to unborn life. We live in a culture of moral chaos, which insists in this, uh, on the on sec- the the sexualization of young children, in public spaces. Jesus said that it would be better for one to have a millstone strung around their neck and to be thrown into the ocean and to cause a little one to stumble. We live in a culture of moral chaos and our silence gives consent. It's important for us to be sensitive to the unbelieving world around us, but when sensitivity becomes silence, something has gone wrong. It is not loving to confirm people in their sin. and It is not pleasing to God. We need to remember that according to Jesus, disagreement is not hate. Disagreement is loving. It is loving. It is loving to name reality and to say that what is wrong is wrong and what is right is is right, and what belongs to God, belongs to God. And when a loving father says no, his children should agree with him. Friends, love speaks truth. Love says to the broken, love says to the enslaved, listen, friend, there is a better way. There's a better way to wholeness. There's a better way to identity, And there's a better way to flourishing. Don't go your way. Go this other way. And I know that many of us are lamenting the present moral chaos. And I want to say just another word about that. Many of us are wondering, what is the solution? And many of us assume that the necessary precondition for the possibility of renewal The necessary precondition for the possibility of pushing back on this moral chaos is is electing the right person. Without diminishing the importance and wisdom of electing sound and good officials, I want to say that the necessary precondition for pushing back on the moral chaos is not electing the next Republican candidate. The necessary precondition for the possibility of any renewal in our culture is a billion little courageous conversations where in our everyday lives we speak the truth into darkness, where we as God's people who hear Jesus' voice, whose voice he says is truth, speak the truth into unbelieving relationships share the truth and love there is there is only one antidote to darkness and that is light and so friends we must be on the side of truth and we must gently but insistently speak light into darkness in a billion little conversations in a billion little interactions faithfully sharing the truth of Jesus with Everyone who needs it and saying no to the lies that come from the father of lies. And of course, when we speak the truth, we must speak it as Jesus did. Scripture tells us that he was full of grace and full of truth. So we must speak the truth graciously. And of course, being on the side of truth in these ways, especially in these days, is going to place us immediately at odds with the world around us. And so many of us may have to count the cost of facing opposition, ridicule, persecution. Maybe speaking the truth in a little conversation will cost you reputation, professional advancement. Maybe you'll be taken to HR. Maybe you'll suffer even worse. But regardless of what the cost of faithfulness to Jesus and answering his call to be on the side of truth will be for you and for me, in all of this we need to remember that we are not alone in our pursuit of truth because Jesus has promised us that surely he will be with us always even to the end of the age. And finally, as we commit ourselves to being on the side of truth, we need to be encouraged that truth has transforming power. Because as we embrace the truth, the transforming power of Jesus is at work to renew our hearts and our minds, to set us free from lies, to set us free from deceptions, to set us free from false narratives that all too often hold us captive. Jesus says some big things in this text. Pilate responds to Jesus with a perennial human question. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, What is truth? What is truth? Almost cynically. The irony of that question is that the truth is not a what, but a who. And the further irony of that question is is that Pilate asks the question to the very one who is the answer. Friends, I hope in all of this you can see that Jesus is also our sovereign. He is sovereign as king, and he is sovereign as truth. But next... We move to the injustice. Winding down the text, John tells us after he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Not guilty, Pilate says to the people. And as we read Pilate's words and his interactions with Jesus, like there's this sense in which he strikes us as a reasonable man throughout this account. But what we're going to see is that the politics of the situation overrule any sense that Pilate has of Jesus' innocence. This shouldn't come to a surprise to us because historically we actually know that Pilate was known for brutality and that he had um, a well-documented reputation for being a weak, politically motivated, opportunistic leader. Pilate is in Passover for Jerusalem. Um, because he wants to make sure that as all the Jews make pilgrimage there, that none of them are overtaken by any ambitions that give rise to a nationalistic uprising against Rome. Pilate lived in Caesarea, but he came down to Jerusalem for Passover because he wanted to make sure that there wasn't any trouble when everybody made pilgrimage to Jerusalem. But now, Pilate has a problem on his hands. The Jews are all stirred up about this Jesus... And if that problem escalates into a riot, Pilate's going to have a real political catastrophe on his hands. So acting in his own best interest, Pilate seeks to appease the Jewish leaders, even though he sees clearly that Jesus is innocent of the charges that they bring against him. And friends, this is where we see the fallenness of human governments. This is where we see the fallenness of human leaders. This is where we see Pilate's evil character. Uh, The fact that Pilate sees Jesus' innocence, innocence makes his participation in Jesus' death so much worse, doesn't it? Rather than serving the interests of justice, rather than protecting the life of the innocent, Pilate chooses the path of political expediency and he condemns an innocent man. But not just any innocent man, he condemns the very Son of God. So to save himself, Pilate exploits a familiar Passover custom that the occupying Romans had established with the Jews. Verse 39, he says to them, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So then Pilate puts it to the people. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Their answer, they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Not this man, but but Barabbas, and once again, Jesus is alone. His government fails him. Handed over, though innocent, in the face of clear innocence, Pilate capitulates to an absolute miscarriage of justice. And John concludes this moment with really just a remarkable simplicity. He says, "Now Barabbas was a robber." I think the, the word "robber" is probably not the best translation. Insurrectionist is probably closer to the mark. Now Barabbas was an insurrectionist. Um, He was guilty of violent uprising against Rome. Uh, Barabbas had been tried and convicted. He was guilty on all all counts of being an insurrectionist. He was imprisoned. Uh, He had already been tried. He was awaiting punishment. His punishment would have almost certainly been death. It would have almost certainly as an insurrectionist been death by crucifixion. And for the sake of local politics, Jesus is handed over to the angry mob in exchange for an insurrectionist. The guilty will go free, and the innocent will be condemned. I want you to think about this Barabbas is released, he's freed. He is saved because Jesus takes his place. Another pastor that I read on this passage remarked how wonderful of the Lord to weave right into history, right into that very moment, such a clear and simple and timely illustration of what he was doing for his people. Jesus Is a substitute. Friends, Jesus is our substitute. He's our substitute. The guilty will go free because the innocent has been condemned. We're tempted to read this account and to look back on Barabbas with a condescending gaze. Oh, that filthy insurrectionist, how could they? But friends, we are the insurrectionists. Each of us has rebelled against a good God. Each of us has insisted on going our own way. Each of us has turned a blind eye to our creator. Each of us has sin-stained hands. And each of us us has been found guilty and condemned before a holy God. We've been released. We've been freed. We've been saved. Because Jesus has taken our place. He's our substitute. Let's conclude. Here in chapter 18, we've seen that in Jesus' darkest hour, his people reject him, his leader denies him, his government fails him. But as we close, I want us to remember that even in his darkest hour, his love compels him. Jesus' love for humanity compels him to face the anguish of betrayal and arrest as he willingly submits to his father's plan for our salvation. His love for his disciples compels him to ensure their safety, even during his arrest, commanding the Roman soldiers to let them go. Jesus' love for the truth compels him to stand firm in the face of false accusations and a biased trial exemplifying faithfulness and integrity. His love for Peter, despite Peter's denial, showcases Jesus' Jesus' compassionate heart and willingness to forgive those of us who falter. Jesus' love for the lost compels him to engage in dialogue with Pilate, revealing the nature of his spiritual kingdom in the call to embrace truth. His love for the Father and in his Father's will enable, compel Jesus to endure unjust treatment and suffering, knowing that it is part of the Father's divine plan for his people's redemption. Jesus' love compels him to remain composed and focused on his mission, even when facing hostility and hatred from the Jewish leaders. His love for the world compels him to accept the unjust verdict of his trial, willingly taking on the curse and the punishment for us. His love for each one of us here today compelled him to persevere through each step of his journey to the cross, knowing that his sacrifice would open the way for us to eternal life. All throughout John 18, the last three weeks, we've seen Jesus' love His love has been the driving force behind his actions and his responses as he willingly endured suffering, betrayal, and humiliation to ultimately demonstrate the greatest act of love, laying down his life for us. So friend, if you're here today and you have not known Jesus' love, I want you to know that it's freely available to you all you need to do is turn from your sin and put your trust in Jesus and in his finished work for you. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our sovereign. Jesus is our substitute. And finally, Jesus is our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for your word which tells us about your son. Jesus, thank you for being our sacrifice, our sovereign, our substitute, and our savior. We turn our attention now to remember your completed work that day of preparation 2,000 years ago as you went to the cross and suffered and died to atone for us. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.